0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable: Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the Gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, let's give our attention to the Word of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that by your spirit we would hear your voice, that what you have spoken here in this text, which is your living and active authoritative word, Father, we would ask that your spirit would take it and he would apply it in our lives this morning. That he would take it and he would do heart work among us. That we might be conformed and shaped to the image of Christ more and more. That we might believe and that our faith might display itself so beautifully in the world. Lord Jesus, you are our hope today. And so we are thankful to be able to have your word show us how to live, show us how to walk. Father, might. The teaching of your word this morning be to your glory. Uh, might you advance yourself in our lives and might you help us now as we listen. We pray and ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, what makes someone a good citizen in our country? What makes you or your neighbor or a friend a good citizen? in this country, even right now, at this time? I think we've boiled down the answer to that question, maybe in a way that we, we really don't think or, or really isn't the strongest of answers on that. We've boiled it down to what makes a person a good citizen in our country is their engagement or lack of engagement in the political process, in the concern for political issues and political agendas. And and we've we've... Put people on a spectrum. So if you're passionately engaged in the civic process, if you are involved in and deeply committed to to political uh, agendas and and parties, and if you have deep opinions about those things, well, we might say that you are actually an active, engaged citizen in our country. You're a good citizen, quote unquote. If you're disengaged, though, on the other side, if you think politics is something you'd never want to hear about again for the rest of your live long life, and you want nothing to do with Tuesday or anything else that's coming down the pipe in that regard, you might be thinking, well, you're a bad citizen, or you maybe have been told you're a bad citizen in our country. Your lack of engagement, your particularly your passionate disengagement in the process, has you on the other side of it as a, as a bad citizen. You're not, you're not a good citizen. And, and then there's the people in the middle, everybody else who kind of just sits in the middle and like, well, you know, some days yes, yeah, some days no, and, and you're just kind of sitting on the fence. You just, It's too much, and, and perhaps you're like, well, I have some interest in it. You'll go vote, and that's, that's good and important, but you're kind of sitting in there in the middle, and you know everybody on either side is looking at you, and they're all annoyed at you. They're like, the pressure's on, you should be more involved, or, or the pressure's off, and you shouldn't be involved. And You're just kind of like in the middle lands, feeling frustration about what, what good is all of this? Where do you actually sit? Does being involved make you a good citizen? Does not being involved make you a bad citizen? Does being kind of somewhere in the middle make you a mediocre citizen? How does the Bible talk about this? How does God want us to see our citizenship? Well, again, we have been looking at 1 Peter 1 and 2, and last week, Peter began to make a turn in his letter. He brings us into the body of the letter to speak about our lives in the world, but not of the world. He's speaking to us as Christians, and to his first audience there, these uh, Christians that had been exiled out of Rome, deported from the city of Rome, and scattered around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Trying to figure out how to live well as followers of Jesus in the midst of a society and a culture that doesn't love them, that in fact is maybe hostile to them, and thinking, how do I be in the world but not of the world? And so he said to them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now Peter, out from that, so keeping that as like the overall umbrella of his idea and his message here, he begins to speak to us about our citizenship here on this earth, or really our engagement with the rulers and authorities over us. How do we live as good citizens in the midst of a culture that that perhaps doesn't like us? How do we live in the midst of a culture and even a political system that is hard to navigate and it's, and it's maybe, moment by moment, feeling more threatening to us. Could there be a view of being a good citizen that has less to do with the political punditry and process and more with our everyday, moment by moment lives? Could our citizenship here on this earth, as Scripture de- describes us as sojourners and exiles, look a lot different and maybe even more like Christ's engagement in the world, but not of the world. Well, that's what this text here deals with, and Peter has layered out for us our identity in Christ. Even though we may feel exiled and sojourners here in this world, which is okay, we may be pilgrims here, this may not be our home, and that's good. We have a way of living, we have a way of going about our engagement, even in politics, in a way that displays the glory and excellencies of Christ. Peter here begins to speak in verses 13 to 17 about how we live out of who we are. If we are beloved by God, if we have a living hope who is Jesus Christ, if we have embraced the living word, if we are being built into a holy temple, living stones, Being shaped in the image of the chief cornerstone, Christ. How do we live in this society? What about if we live in a society and a culture that is godless and pagan and even hostile to us as Christians? Well, here's Peter's big idea in this text this morning. He wants us to see that God's people are good citizens. God's people are good citizens in the world, but not of the world. But again, I go back to my original question well, how do we define what it means to be a good citizen? what does that really look like? How are we distinct? Not engaged or disengaged or more moderately engaged, but how do we live as the people of God here in the world but not of the world? Peter has three practices for us to see in verses 13 through 17, three practices that we as Christians must undertake to help us live as godly citizens in the world today. These practices are a way of reflecting not a... A lock and step beholdance to the world, not just a giving ourselves to whatever the world has to say, independent of what God might say, but a way of living differently and distinctly, even engaging in the world and the world of government and politics in a uniquely Christian way. And so I want to show us these three practices this morning. The first one is this that for God's sake, we must submit to our rulers. That's the first practice here that Peter speaks about as we live distinct as sojourners and exiles here in this world as beloved of God in Christ. We, for his sake, submit to our rulers. Well, What does he mean by that? Let's look here at verses 13 and 14. The first two words here are the verb. They are the command. Be subject. (laughs) Okay, we're going to really enjoy this one this morning, right? It's really direct. Be subject. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him. Well, what is he talking about there? And I love the fact that this is so clear. It, it doesn't seem to be very opaque or, or something that we have to kind of figure out, well, where's, where's he exactly he coming from on this? What does he exactly mean? To be subject here, the verb in this, my Greek lexicon defines it as being in a submissive relationship with, or furthermore, to be obedient to. Literally, to place yourself under. This isn't a loophole system for us to find our exemptions and get our way out of it. God's authority is clear. Be subject to every human institution that God lays over us. Okay, go one more step with me. Okay, what are these human institutions? What is he talking about here? Well, Peter gets more specific in this. To every human institution or every created order... And he's thinking about here systems of government and organization for society in this regard. But he makes it personal. Whether to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. Now listen very carefully here. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Peter and he begins to clarify for us where our obedience, our submission, our humility should be directed to every human institution particularly the emperor and governors, over us. Peter here is describing for us a way of living distinctly in this world that we should obey our government leadership, whether that's presidents or governors or all legal authority over us, which has been given or ordained by God. Now, you might think here for just a minute, well, of course Peter would say that. He's a Christian, and he's writing to a bunch of Christians, and, and, and perhaps his society was a very Christian society. He had a Christian emperor over him that was, you know, morally ethical and, and pro-life and valued traditional family values and was a fiscal conservative and just a leader in mind, just the kind of person that we would, we would naturally submit to, that we would think, yeah, yeah, we could just follow along with that. Wrong. <laughs> no. Peter is talking about as the emperor here. In this context here, Peter is speaking about Emperor Nero. You know anything about Emperor Nero? He's not a great guy. No, Nero was one of the most despotic, violent, arrogant, sexually immoral leaders of all history. He was a complete train wreck morally. He was so opposed to Christians and Christianity that he set up a conspiracy to burn the city of Rome and then to blame it on the Christians in that city. And for retribution, he ordered and acted that the Christians in the city of Rome would be burned to death, lined up on the Appian Way, hung on crosses, and torched to light the night sky. This guy is not a friend of Christianity. And Peter here is writing... Under the influence and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, to say to the church, to us, to Christians, to say, submit to that guy? Place yourself under his authority. Obey. The Holy Spirit here isn't just saying obey the good guys. He's saying obey the authority, the institutions of government that have been placed over you by God. Why does he say this? Is he insane? Does he just have a, a bad day? Maybe Peter's our enemy. No here. He says, for the Lord's sake. Maybe underline that. For the Lord's sake. What does the Lord have to do with any of this? Does it help him or give God any power if we obey the governing authorities? Does God somehow increase in some way if we do or not? Does he decrease if we don't? Well, no. God's power doesn't increase or decrease based on our submission. But what happens here is the reputation of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the perspective of people in the world towards Christianity is affected by the way Christians who bear his name display their submission to governing authorities. It's about his testimony or witness in the world. When Christians don't submit to governing authority, when they don't submit to the rules of the land, the laws of the land, they don't enhance the view of God in the world. As non-believers look on and they see our Christian lives, our rebellion, if you will, our lack of submission to governing authorities does not proclaim the name of Christ or enhance the reputation of God in the world. It brings harm to his reputation. It it, it distracts from the witness of God and his church. This is an aspect of adorning the gospel well of living out the truth that God has rescued us by Christ and that we, under his reign, also submit to the reign and authority of those that he has placed over us. It's an adornment of the gospel, and so when people don't see us submit and follow well to what God has ordained, it demonstrates we're rebellious people anyway, and it demonstrates that maybe God isn't who he said he is. Maybe his glory isn't to be seen In all the world. For God's sake, for the Lord's sake. This is an issue of submission to the Lord Himself. It's not just about whoever sits in the White House or whoever's at Lansing in the the governor's chair. This is about our relationship with the Lord. If we can't submit to the authority He's placed over us by His sovereign power and authority, are we displaying to the world we're not going to submit to God either? It's for his sake, to adorn the gospel. But there's a further reason. You see it there in verses 13 and 14. They've been sent by him. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's a, there's a purpose here. Why has God instituted government? Why do we have a president and a governor and Congress and just the way that we have government in this country? Why is that there? Well, the scripture here says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has sent that government. He's ordained it for a purpose. He's ordained that, governor, that government and those governors to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, this is the ultimate ideal of what government should do in a society. It should restrain evildoers and it should advance Those who are living righteously. That's the ideal way of government in any society to restrain those. Our hearts are so corrupt. Our wickedness is so thorough that we actually still need moral restraint. We we need help to keep us and our society as a whole from devolving into utter chaos and evil that would be destructive for everyone. So, God has a view of common grace here for all of us, whether Christian or non Christian. Government is instituted to restrain evil and advance righteousness. Civil government, the kind that Peter describes here, is the kind of restraint against our depravity. And government, as it should function, should help us and help punish those who do evil. One person has said it like this. This is is from Sam Storms. He says, our obedience to the governing authorities, therefore, is at best only secondary Our primary allegiance is to God. It's to bring honor to him and make known his greatness and majesty, that we give our lives in obedience to the emperor or king or president or whoever is in power. Consider this by way of degree here. This might help us get it a little bit. We expect our children to honor what God says when he says in Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. I mean, that's kind of the uh, verse that I've nailed above my children's doors uh, when they walk in and out of their bedroom. They know, <laughs> they know to obey. And when they, we hold them to that. When they get out of hand, we take them to the Scripture and say, look, Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. It's godly, God-given authority over them for their good, for their protection, for their care, for their provision. That's God's design. So this is a matter of degree here. We as adults, Residents of a society, of a nation, have a similar authority over us to help us. It's government, government leadership, presidents, governors, legislatures, judges. They've been ordained and sent by God. And so in the same degree that we would call our children to obey our parents, and the Lord for this is right, so we here clearly have the scripture saying, be subject to every." human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme in our nation or to the governors as sent by him for the Lord's sake, because he has overseen that for us. Now you might think, well, wait a second, our, the government's corrupt and everything is bad and just like, how can I go along with that? Well, we're not here to turn off our minds and just go, okay, well, just whatever's, whoever's in Washington at the time, we'll just easy peasy fall along with them. This isn't about that. But we do have to have a posture of humility, of respect, of obedience to those who are in governing authority, even if we don't agree with them. We as Christians are never called to obey the governing authorities over the word of God. No, we must, we must obey God's word first and foremost. But we must care for the testimony in the name of Christ in the world. And let me be very clear here this morning. This isn't about who you're voting for. It's about who we're living under in the government. The leaders of our government, they have been placed in power. So if a party gets elected on Tuesday that you don't want to see in power, you're still called to submit to the governing authorities. I've, I've seen too many signs around our communities these days about our governor in Lansing being a moron. And I don't know if they're sitting in the yards of Christians or not, but we as Christians have a distinct respect and way of living in this world that honors whoever's placed in power, regardless of whether we like the party that they're part of or not, or their politics, be subject, submit, honor, give reverence to. We show that we're citizens of heaven and a distinct life that glorifies God and commends the good news of Jesus in the world when we honor and respect and submit even to those in government authority, even to those we would disagree with. But we look just like the world when we parrot and mimic the postures and attitudes and actions of the world in our political discourse and divisions. We don't show Christ well. We show we're just as ungodly and worldly as the world around us when we use the same rhetoric, the same postures, the same division, the same lack of submission in this world rather than submission that Christ teaches us to. We're citizens of heaven as followers of Jesus, not this world. And yet the world is watching. So, as the scripture says, for God's sake, submit yourself to the rulers that he has given over us. This is the first practice of living as godly citizens in our society today. But the second one is more street level. It takes us another level. It relates to our neighbors. So when we think about Washington and Lansing and those governing over us, even, even within our local communities, this one takes it down to, like, how are we living our, our daily lives? And this is what Peter says in verse 15. Here's the practice. For goodness sake, do good. For goodness sake, do good, verse 15. For this is the will of God. Let me stop right there because I know, and I hear it all the time, people saying, what is God's will? Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I eat the chicken or the steak? Should I wear this shirt or maybe another one? And like those things are good and important to think through. But I love the fact that Scripture here clearly gives us an identity about what the will of God is. If you want to know what the will of God is in your life, like think about this verse here. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You want to know how to live? What's God's will for your life? Do good. Period. Do good in the world. Live in such a way that you're doing the right things, you're honoring God in that. This is the will of God, that you do good, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I mean, don't we live in just a cacophony of culture? Everybody speaking loudly about everything in the world. Everybody shouting down and talking down each other. I mean, I've had to just like, get rid of social media altogether because it's just this echo chamber of horror. Like, we're just not speaking Well, And it sounds like what Peter says here, (laughs) the ignorance of foolish people, talking out of both sides of our mouths, just like rah, 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 all over. But what's the will of God? Do good. It's a parallel verse to what he said in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's how we should live in this world. This is the way that we engage well as citizens. We do good for other people. We serve, we give ourselves, we humble ourselves, we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. We must become extraordinarily active in doing good in this world, not just affirming what is good with our mouths, but doing what is good with our actions. Part of the way we can assess whether we're just giving lip service to doing good or actually doing good is by the question that Hannah Anderson raises in her book, All That Is Good. Are we pursuing what is safe or are we pursuing what is good? Are we pursuing just what is safe and is comfortable for us or are we actively living in such a way to pursue what is good in the world? Many of us only pursue in the world doing what is safe for us and our families instead of looking at injustice and evil and wrongdoing and committing ourselves to being agents of reconciliation and of the kingdom of God in this world. We give lip service to those things, but we don't enact those things. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, notes this. This is just the history of the church in the world. By the 4th century, Christians had invented hospitals, established welfare systems, and cared for the needy. Indeed, the 4th century theologian John Chrysostom argued from Scripture that failing to give charitably amounted to robbing the poor. And as Christianity spread, so did a concern for the least. That's the movement of the church from Peter's time. This kind of act of doing good set up hospitals, cared for and invested itself in education, took care of the needs of the poor and the broken and the sick and the ostracized Could that be said of Christians today? Could that be said of us today, of doing good? If you're more concerned about winning the argument than you are serving the individual, you you probably stand on the line of this passage that says you're speaking ignorance and being a foolish person. Peter just calls us to, like, here's the will of God. Get to doing what is right and just and good and holy in this world. It starts with each of us. Doing what we should do, must do, to love and serve our neighbors and then our community and then our city and then beyond. We must care for the unborn, the orphan, the poor, the sick, the neglected, the abused, the trafficked, the oppressed, the marginalized, and every pow- person who in our power we have the opportunity to serve and to love. To remind, let me remind you of the great, greatest commandment, Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the will of God that you do by doing good, you put to silence the foolish of an ignorant people. So for goodness sake, do what's right. Followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be an active people. That's how we are good citizens in this world. Not just concern for me and mine, but concerned for the needs and the concerns of others. For God's sake, submit to your rulers. For goodness sake, do what is good. And the third practice that Peter brings us here is this. For freedom's sake, live to serve. For freedom's sake, live to serve. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 live as people who are free. Boy, if that doesn't feel like the most American verse in the entire Bible, I don't know what is, right? We love that one. Live, live as people who are free. But the freedom here that Peter has in mind isn't the American freedom that we love so much and that we pursue and we want to see kept. He's talking here about a freedom from sin, Spiritual freedom. Live as people who are free, using your freedom, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here Peter is driving us to see that our freedom is to be a freedom from sin. Christ has come to our world. He has come to our culture and to our society. Law that was built upon rebellion, that's built upon doing its own thing, that's in bondage to sin, enslaved to sin, And he set us free by the power of his cross. He died in our place for our sins to liberate us from what held us back, our own wickedness and rebellion. And so in saying live as people who are free, Peter is saying you don't have to walk in the ways of your sinful humanity. You don't have to keep going to the well of your rebellion against God and your hatred of other people. Live as people who are free from sin. Live from the shackles of your past rebellion. Live as people who are free unto God. But don't use your freedom as a, as a cover-up for evil. Don't think that, well, now that Jesus has rescued me, now that I'm saved, I can live however I want and do whatever I want because I'm a free person. That's not freedom. That's just bondage to sin again. No. Live as people who are free, living as servants, of God, the Greek word here for servants is the word doulos. It's the word slave. So it's not just freedom to live however we want, whenever we want, to do whatever we want. Free, autonomous people in and of ourselves. No, he's he's putting us under a new master, a better king. Live as people who are servants of God for freedom's sake. John Calvin put it this way. He said, There is no liberty given to us to hurt our neighbors or to do any harm to others. True liberty, then, is that which harms or injures no one. Our freedom drives us to serve and to love and to help others. The way I like to think about this is the concept of quorum Deo, meaning before the face of God, that this is how we should live every day of our lives in his presence. Knowing that we stand before him and he sees us, he knows us, how would I live my life for his glory? For his name's sake, for his good pleasure? If I wake up in the morning and say, today my life is to be quorum deo before the face of God, will I do good? Will I I live as free unto him? Live to serve him, live to serve him among my neighbors and my community? This is how Peter drives us, how the Holy Spirit drives us to live as good citizens in society. I mean, don't you want to live in a society where people are doing good for one another? Don't you want to be a part of a community, a city, a country, where our main emphasis is living as servants of God and care for one another? That's that's the ideal here. That's the, the glory of what we as people of God should be. So he invites us to that. So this is what good citizenship really looks like. Here in this world, living as free people for the sake of God, to serve one another. And so he sums it up in verse 17. Here's how these practices bear themselves out. Here's what it means to live this way in the world. First of all, there's four distinct sentences here. Each of these sentences has an object, a a person involved, or a person in mind in this, and a way, a verb to, to enact. First of all, honor everyone. Okay, let's just deal with the word honor there. It's to give respect or dignity or value to someone or to something, to hold them in high esteem. Okay, that's the that's the verb. That's the action. Who are we to honor? It's all inclusive, everyone. Let me me ask it this way, a little humor for you. Does anyone fall outside of the category of everyone? No, no. Not one single image bearer on the planet falls outside of the category of everyone. It's all inclusive. Everybody, honor them. That means, yes, honoring the people you don't like, honoring the people who don't look like you, Honoring the people who believe differently than you. Honoring the people who vote differently than you. Honoring the people that maybe in your mind would want to tear down your way of life. Honoring the people that you don't want to honor. That's the way of Christ. Jesus said, bless your enemies. Pray for them. Honor everyone. Give respect and dignity and value. It's all comprehensive. Honor involves our words, our speech, our thoughts, our actions, every single aspect of who we are. Okay, we're done, right? (laughs) There it is. Honor everyone. But he goes even a step further. Second group here. The brotherhood. Love. Love. That's what we want. We want to feel loved. We want to be loving. Love is that that attribute, that trait of giving ourselves for, caring for, desiring, affirming, embracing. Love who? Love the brotherhood. Now in this context, Peter here is speaking of the church, of fellow believers. Our love for other Christians, our love for the local church should be deep. You can't love someone and speak poorly against them. You can't love someone and stab them in the back on their way out. You can't love someone and gossip about them. You can't love someone and not pray for them or serve them. Here, he's calling us to the church, to one another, to love one another, to love the brotherhood. Here's how we live as as people, as good citizens in this world. I mean, the world is fractious. It's divided in every way and in every place, but that's not to be the case in the house of God love one another. Our love for our brothers and sisters, even in our disagreement, is the litmus test of following Jesus Christ. It's what Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic. As the world looks in, they don't see our doctrinal statements. They don't see our programs or our postures or anything. They're looking to see, do they love one another? And that, Jesus even said, is the authenticity of our being disciples of his. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Third action, fear. This isn't just kind of the Halloween night scary fear that many of you had as you walked around your neighborhood. This is the reverence, awe, respect, worship. And to who is that given? God. Fear God. We'll stand before him one day. He is the king and the judge over all things. We're to fear him give ourselves to him there's to be a holy reverence and respect and trembling for him fear god it's how we live in this world before his face and then lastly honor again so he comes back to this verb of giving dignity and respect and value and worth honor who the emperor Peter's writing about Nero. Don't let that fact escape your mind here. He is writing about honoring someone who is worthy of no honor, no value. And he says, honor him, honor the emperor. Again, it speaks to us about our speech and conduct and respect given or withheld from those who stand in those offices. And when you think about it, You must think about Jesus. Peter here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from God himself, is saying, honor the emperor. So whoever's in the White House, even if we'll know or not know later this week, whoever sits in the White House, we're to give honor to. Whoever's in Lansing, we're to honor. Respect. That involves our speech. That involves our Attitudes that involves our conduct towards the people of God have a distinct way of living in this world, but not of this world. And that takes us to Jesus. Consider how Jesus used his freedom. The most free human being in all the world, because he's God. He comes and he submits himself to a cultural climate that was hostile to his very people, to his very ethnicity. And he served He he puts himself in the midst of a community that is rebellious, they betray him, they deny him, they're fractioned even among themselves, and he takes off his cloak and he serves them by washing their feet. and says, I give you an example. He stood before governing leaders, Pilate and Herod, and they slandered him, they abused him, they beat him, they executed him. He was in unfair trials against him and you never see a word of dishonor or disrespect flow from the mouth of Jesus. He, out of his freedom, gave himself for us, his ultimate enemies, who in our hostility and our rebellion and self-valuing sought to tear down his rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And he served us by dying for us. Christians, if you need a model for you of how to engage civically in the world, but not of the world, only go to Jesus. Deeply look at Jesus, who paid his taxes, who honored the emperor, who served and humbled himself and gave himself for the world. And if you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian, I want to commend Jesus to you as the great example, and Savior for us. He's the one who shows us how we are to live in the world, but not of the world. And he is the one who came to die for you so that you could have a distinctly new way of life, that you wouldn't be holding to the politics and the political punditry and agendas of this world, but would be freed to live in the kingdom of heaven under his glorious and gracious rule and reign forever and ever. Come to Jesus this morning. Let's see him. I come to this text and I know that I'm not perfect in these things. God's been doing His work on my heart because of this text, but we can all come to Jesus and to see Him and to trust Him. God's people live as good citizens, but it's this different kind of citizenship. It's a different way of citizenship than the world talks about. It's a citizenship that has embraced Christ and lives as a citizen of His kingdom and is a pilgrim, a sojourner here in this world, but not of it. So what do we do? We honor everyone, we love the brotherhood, we fear God, and we honor the emperor. And that's why we're flipping the script on our service liturgy this morning. We need this week, this time, to have something that centers us to be a gravitational pull to the very heart of God. And that's what we're going to remember right now in the Lord's Supper. Because regardless of how you vote this week, how you think things should go down, if you're a follower of Jesus, this world is not our home. And whoever sits in Washington or Lansing doesn't determine our ultimate fate. Christ does. And if we're followers of his, we've given ourselves to him. And so this morning, we need to, at the center moment of our service, before we sing and worship any further, we need to humble ourselves before Christ the King, whose body was broken for our redemption, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's what these elements symbolize and represent before us today. The bread tells us that Jesus' body was broken, that he died, he suffered in our place. The cup Tells us, it reminds us of his blood shed for our sins. So, whether you vote red or blue this week, regardless of what you do or how you live, the cross of Jesus Christ must be central for us as followers of Jesus. So, I want to invite you this morning to come to Christ, our, cross, our, our leader, our Savior, and his cross. Come to his cross that unifies us. Communion takes us before God and reminds us of what he has done for us, but it takes us to one another. And so you're going to need to look around the room this morning. You're going to see other brothers and sisters in Christ. And they may not think the way you do. They may not go the way you do. They may not vote the way that you you do. But because of what Jesus has done, we are united in him. Communion brings us to that. We're all going to partake of the same bread and the same cup, remembering the same Savior. Jesus Christ, and Father, we pray that as your people this morning, that we would live as good citizens in this world and not of it. That we would, that we would love and honor everyone. That we would love the brotherhood. That we would fear you. That we would honor the emperor. May the cross of Christ be our center, our greatest hope, our reality, the very reality that defines us. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us. We pray this now in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself to us today.